Hi everyone, I'm Paloma Contreras and welcome to another edition of the Style Files podcast. Today's guest is a very special one, one who truly needs no introduction, but will try to do her justice anyhow. Bunny Williams is one of the most talented names in design. She's also an accomplished businesswoman, entrepreneur, author, and philanthropist. A lover of dogs, gardens, and China, Bunny's knowledge and expertise is on par with her enjoyment of life. Her eponymous firm launched in 1988 following a 22-year apprenticeship with the esteemed Parrish Hadley Associates. Bunny Williams is renowned for balancing refined beauty, welcoming livable appeal, and attention to detail. While the creation of delightful rooms is Bunny's passion, her firm's success, above all, is anchored in long-lasting and valued relationships with its clientele. The resulting commissions over three decades, many for repeat homeowners, are found across the United States and abroad, in city apartments, country estates and cottages, in the mountains and by the water. Bunny's own houses and her long career have provided ample material and inspiration for six books to date, and she is a sought-after speaker and mentor on design, decoration, gardening, and entertaining. Bunny grew up in the countryside near Charlottesville, Virginia. Her parents encouraged her passion for the arts and led her to Garland Junior College in Boston, where she studied interior design. A watershed moment at age 15 was visiting the Dorothy Draper decorated Greenbrier Resort, which had a color palette unlike anything Bunny had ever seen. It really taught her to open her eyes and not to play it safe. Upon moving to New York, Bunny worked at Staring Company, an antiques gallery frequented by Sister Parrish and Albert Hadley. Bunny subsequently joined Parrish Hadley and remained at the venerable firm for 22 years. After those 22 years, Bunny had worked as a secretary, assistant, and buyer, and had the tools and experience to run her own enterprise. Shortly thereafter, fueled by her devotion to gardening, Bunny opened Trey Lodge in 1991, along with her husband, the antiques dealer, John Rosselli. Considered both groundbreaking and industry-changing, Trey Lodge drew A-list designers, editors, and tastemakers to its off-the-beaten-track, Upper East Side destination for the ultimate in home and garden. Never one to rest on her many awards, accolades, and honors, Bunny keeps her eye on what's next, whether it's her collaborations with Ballard Designs, Bunny Williams Home, or her next book. Forward thinking always, Bunny says, while it's certainly nice to look back on one's accomplishments, it's more interesting for me to look ahead. Bunny, I couldn't agree more, and I welcome you so warmly. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Glad that you could join us. Okay, I'm on. Perfect. So how are you? I am fine. I am fine. Other than being frustrated by all the technology, I don't know how to work. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I think we're all having to get to getting used to um, new technologies as we work from home and social distance and all of this jazz that comes with our new reality. It certainly does. And it's, there's so many options. And when you haven't when you haven't done it, because mostly I'm in my office, I have one-on-one meetings, I'm at site visits, and now trying to do all this online is, gets very frustrating sometimes, but I'll learn it. Absolutely. Well, you know what they say, technology, can't live with it and can't live without (laughs) it. (laughs) Exactly. So where are you and John currently riding out the storm? Are you in Connecticut? We're in Connecticut. We're so lucky to be here, to have this house. Um, you know, I've been here for most, almost 40 years and I've never loved this house more. Um, so we're here, I'm up in my studio where I have my computer and my, really my office and my books and, um, we're in the garden some and in the greenhouse. And so it's, I have to say it's, it's a really wonderful place to be. I worry though so much about people who 
can't get outside because I know right. how much it means to me. Absolutely. I feel like there's never been a time when the importance of home has been quite as evident as it is right now. I think everyone is really, really realizing how important it is to be in a place that's functional and comfortable and to have things of beauty and meaning surrounding us, especially in times that feel kind of dark, because those are the things that really bring us hope. Oh, absolutely. And I hope, you know, it's interesting, even even in my own house being here, you know, on this long period of time, I'm like, oh, I need to fix that. I need to do this. I need, oh, that lampshade sort of doesn't look so good. So I think it's a time, even if you have a studio apartment to think and say, okay, if this is my home, what can I do to it to make it better? Absolutely. And Bunny, are you still actively working with your clients during this time? Yes. Um, the ones that I can who have projects, particularly if we are working on architectural plans, things like that. What I find very frustrating for me is that I don't have my fabrics here. I can't go mm. to the D&D &D building. So I can't really do scheming, but I can do floor plans. We can, I, one of the going through, you know, image, making images, talking to clients about what I hope to do when we can get back to work. Right. I think right now there's so that's so wise because there's so many moving parts and unknown factors. And so really it's just about keeping the ball rolling as much as we can and managing expectations, which we do every day anyhow as decorators. I'm but sure. um, I think more than ever that that really matters and it gives the client something to look forward to as much as best we can. And I think we all have to be sensitive to um you know, some people want to have something else to think about, want to have something to be excited about, but some people don't, you know, I mean, there are mm -hmm. others, there are days sometimes when I just go, where is this going to end? And I'm so worried about, you know, people being able to stay in business. You know, there's the whole downside to all of this that you can't help but worry about. That's so true. Well, Bunny, that leads me sort of to your um, your background. You've obviously been in the design business for a very long time. You're one of the most revered people in this industry for very good reason. Um, you've had your firm since 1988. And prior to that, you were with the venerable Parrish Hadley for 22 years. So you've seen the effects of ups and downs in the economy, you know, we've had terror attacks and wars and all kinds of things. What advice do you have for people who are listening, who have their own design firms and might be worried about what things look like on the other side of this? You know, it's, it's interesting that, I mean, yes, I've been through lots of ups and downs, but I've never been through something where the businesses are locked down. I mean, literally, when you think about it, you, you know, I can't go into my office. John's shop is closed. I mean, I've never had to deal with what I call a lockdown. And I think that it is, I think the industry is going to, I think we need to think about um, how we can hold on to our businesses, try to, I mean, if you're a small designer and you work from home. Luckily, you don't have a big rent. Um, if you have a big office and a rent, uh, you just, we have to sit down and really figure out how can we 
go through this time financially to get to the other side. I also think that for we should use the time to really, you know, educate ourselves more, read more, figure out what it what don't you know? I mean, um, mm-hmm. I think that it we can sit back and say, oh, you know, I'd like to learn more about a p- furniture or other designs and really, you know, get on your computer, get on Pinterest, go to your library. I'm, I'm very lucky to have a big library, but if you don't, you can do a lot of things exploring online to educate yourself so that when you come out of this, you're going to feel a little bit more empowered. That's great advice. I think you're right. We should all look for the silver lining and the opportunity in this time to better ourselves in some way or another. And actually, I've never seen, I must say, I've never (laughs) seen anything like Instagram. Um, It's just astounding. I think a lot more people, um, you know, have time and the the computer and the phone is, you know, becomes something they're just glued to. Um, And so I would say to young designers, you know, it's a time that you can try to establish yourself, hopefully on and gain access to having people know who you are. That's so true. And isn't it wild? Everybody's glued to their phone. If anything has come out of this, I think people are definitely more connected with one another, whether it's setting up FaceTime calls with family and these virtual happy hours that I'm seeing or just actually picking up the phone and making phone calls to friends and family that, you know, people seem so frenzied typically in our regular day to day to just make it through the day to the next. And I think this has given us all a little bit of pause to sort of sit and think about what really matters, who really matters in our lives and to make time for those things. And as you said, it's a great opportunity to also think about how your, your business might become a little bit more nimble. Right. And also to, it's interesting. It's also to get across who you are. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I've, I must say that there are people I follow and I'm like, okay, I really don't need to know what you're having at every meal. Um, (laughs) You know, I find, I find John and I find we want to eat less. I mean, yes, you know, we'll make a batch of soup and it'll last three days because there's so much on my mind that preparing some big meal that I don't need to eat. I have, I just, there are other things I want to do to keep myself busy. And and I just think people, if they're posting a lot, should post about different things and then you get to know them. Sure. That's great advice. So, Bunny, let's dive right into your path as a creative and how you ended up where you are now. You've had one of the most illustrious careers in design, starting with your 22-year run at the legendary Parish Hadley under Sister Parish and Albert Hadley, where you started as a secretary. Where, what was that experience like? Well, it was... It was pretty amazing. I mean, I was 22 and I had been working in an antique shop. I had my first job when I was 20 and I worked in an antique shop and I knew I wanted to be a decorator. So, but I wasn't sure quite how to get there. So I took this job in a, in a wonderful English antique shop, staring company. And um, I then one day just walked up the street. I got my nerve and asked, if there was a job, I said, I'll do anything. And Albert needed a secretary. And so I was hired. 
uh, and I sat in this little office with Albert. I had a roll top desk and he was really one of the most incredible people. Mrs. Powers and Albert were so very, very different. Uh, Albert had really been a teacher. He, he taught it at, at Parsons, I believe, and under William Odom. And so he, everything he did, he did almost in a professorial way. He would ask a question of what you thought about something. And, he, you know, I always say I went to the University of Powers Hadley. The best <laughs> thing, though, is when I started out, I started doing the typing the purchase orders, doing the, uh, you know, the estimating to clients. I learned the business, which I think is the most important thing a designer has to go. You may think, oh, I have great style and taste and, you know, whatever. But if you don't understand your business, it's the bottom, it's the root of it. And, um, you know, actually, I have to say I'm running a good business is is enabling us to get through this terrible time um, because I'm very conservative and, you know, I can keep my staff on payroll because I understood all along that it's really a business. So I started out doing that and then I got to do be the shopper, you know, got to go out into the into the um show houses, I mean, the uh, the showrooms and look for a fabric or look for a trim, um, which was so much fun. And Albert was always the teacher. Mrs. Parrish, on the other hand, was just this instinctive designer. Uh, and I wouldn't say designer. Albert was a, he, he approached it through design. We had to do elevations. We had to do floor plans. Mrs. Parrish would do a floor plan on a piece of paper and she would draw a sofa that was nine feet long and a little table over here. But she knew in her head exactly what she wanted to look, wanted it to look like. She could walk in a room and just say, the sofa's going there, there'd be chairs here. There's gonna be a long table over here. There's gonna be this, that. And she never measured anything. And she could go out the next day and find a table to fit exactly where she wanted it to be. And so they were these two very different approaches. Um, and I think that she she always made, if you look at really Sister Paris, you saw these cozy um, kind of um, unstudied rooms, but they were studied at, in the same time. She could get more chairs in a room than anybody I've ever seen. And then you look at Albert Hadley and it was very tailored, very much more modernist, much cleaner. So I think having this incredible exposure to these two different points of view um, really framed the way I think about design. Right. That's so fascinating. And I'm sure it must have been so interesting to see the parallels between their two styles come together in one firm and to learn from both. That's incredible. At what point did you realize that you were ready to go out on your own? Well, luckily, I, over the years of being there, I had established a client base of my own, people who were coming to me. I was their designer. They did not even see Mrs. Parrish or Albert. And um, I think that, you know, I, I adored both of them. I actually stayed friends with them until the end. But, you know, you you have to be sensible. I was in my early 40s and I had to say, okay, 
what is this? I mean, I should be made a partner. There should be some sign of, you know, a commitment to my future. And it was very hard. Um, Albert wanted it to happen. Mrs. Parrish, I think, had a harder time with it. And we negotiated and talked about it for a number of years. And then finally, one morning, I just woke up and I said, look, I... I need to leave. And I think one of the interesting things, I was speaking to somebody actually professionally and they kept saying, what is holding you back? Why are you, why are you not leaving? I mean, you have the jobs, you have the clients. And I said, well, I'm always worried about the business side of it. I'm not very good at balancing the checkbook or running numbers. I have a good sense of business, but I just have never been a mathematician. And I don't really know how to even, you know, set up a, a balance sheet. And this person said to me, don't you know there are people who like to do that? And I'm like, <laughs> really? <laughs> I like to look at fabrics and furniture and put together rooms. And right away I said, that's what I need. I need to find an, a manager, a, somebody to set up my business. And the minute I realized that I could have that taken care of, and it wouldn't just be on my shoulders. Um, I was out the door. I think as a business person, it's so wise to identify the things that one enjoys and one is good at and what our weaknesses are and then bring in the people who can do those things that we are not good at. It makes you so much stronger as a business person. And I think sometimes when people are just starting out, they're afraid of what that commitment, that investment looks like. But in the end, it makes you so much more productive and allows you to grow so much more quickly than if you tried to figure it out on your own and just made mistake after mistake. Well, and, and, you know, this is a business. Your clients want, they want answers, they want estimates, they want proper billing, they, they want, you know, they, they expect this. And I think that every young designer has to realize, can they do all that? Uh, you know, how, how are they going to cope with that side of it? Um, and I think that's just so important. Absolutely. One of the many things I admire about you is that in addition to being an incredibly talented designer, you are also a very astute businesswoman. What should people understand about what it takes to run a successful design business? Can you share a little bit about how you structure your firm or how you like to manage your projects? Well, the um, I have two um, teams I, I work on every project and I have two teams. So I'm the one who um, does, works with the designers to come up with the, the concepts, the scheme, the plans, the direction, how, what we want to happen in this, in a particular project. And then the two uh, design teams everybody shares different things. I mean, uh, some are better at scheming, some are better at looking for furniture, some are, uh, you know, it's, I use everybody's um, skill sets, let's say that. And then each team has a coordinator. Each team has one person who does all the estimating, sends out all the proposals, um, gets the deposits, we have an accounting office. And then when things are purchased, that person is responsible for everything that happens to that, the purchase, the thing we purchase. So does it have to go to the finisher? Does it go to storage? 
so that when we finish a project, when the project is over, we have what's called an installation. And everything that we've bought over the last year or two years or sometimes three years comes to the site and is installed. And that takes a lot of people to keep it all on track. We then have an accounting department that does sends out the bills, pays the bills, um, does the salaries, taxes, and does the you know the business function. And there are a lot of components that I think designers, if they really, even in a smaller scale, all these things have to be dealt with. You know, you have to do the scheming, the planning, the creative work. Then you have to do the purchasing. Then you have to do the follow-up and then you have to do the installation and the billing, you know, all these things, even if you're just doing one job, it still is, that's the kind of steps that you have to go through. And I meet with once a month with um, my accountant and my, and Elizabeth Lawrence, who is my partner, who's invaluable to me. I could not be doing this without her and we sit down and we look at every um you know every cost the billing for the month the cost for the month so the expenses that we have so we i monitor it um you know it's like a budget you monitor it on a monthly basis to see how you're doing and that you know if you need to cut costs how can you do that um so you have to watch it constantly to make sure you're on track Right. Absolutely. It's as much about the timeline and the budget as it is about the creativity. But I think both are equally important in order to meet the client's expectations. And I think you have to, um, you know, all clients really want to know what are they getting into. Um, we, when we start a project, we obviously do the, the floor plans. And from that floor plan, we generate what we happen to call the shopping list, but it has everything that that room needs is given a number and it goes on, say the living room, everything that's on that floor plan is given a number. Now, one number may be the client's own table. So we put down client's own table, but everything else that we we know we're going to have to purchase for that room, we try to give it a budget. And then people can sit there and say, okay, that's all right. Or I don't want to spend that much money or, um, but it's, it's also, it's a guideline. So if you are out shopping and you find a table that's over the budgeted price, at least the client knows that and says, okay, or no, I don't want to do that. So they know that you are being responsible about the costs of the project. Right. It comes down yeah. to trust, that fundamental trust that you understand not only the vision, but that, you know, you're handling their finances appropriately. I always say that the, the relationship between designer and client is a very intimate one. Not only are we in these people's homes around their families and their pets, but they're entrusting us with what I think is the most sacred space, as well as, you know, a, a decent amount of money to bring these spaces to life. I also think, I mean, I have to say, I mean, I'm very conservative that way, but I, I it may be, 
I feel like I'm spending my own money and I advise them, you know, I will say, well, this is a really pretty table, but I think it's entirely too expensive and not worth it. Mm -hmm. Or I will say, um, let's go. I mean, I know enough about furniture to be able to advise them when I think something is well-priced and you, you know, and you say to, I'll say to the clients, well, let's do the custom upholstery for the living room and the rooms that you're going to sit in. And I can get, you know, more commercial, but nice upholstery chairs for the kids' rooms or the guest bedrooms. So I think you, you want to spend their money as though it was your own, thinking, what would I do if this was my, you know, where would I spend the money on something? And the minute they know that, that you're not trying to sell them the most expensive fabric or the, the there's a trust comes that, you know, never goes away. Absolutely. So Bunny, I'm sure you get so many inquiries being the yeah. legend that you are in the design <laughs> world. What, what do you look for? I'm sure you can't take on every project that comes through your door. So what is most compelling to you? Well, I think, Who I, you think that, to work with? I think that you, you have to like the client, number one. And I always mm -hmm. want to have a meeting. I mean, sometimes people will say, um, oh, will you come down to see my project? And, and I say, well, why don't you come to New York and let's have a meeting first? Because um, I've made that mistake a couple of times where I've gone down, you know, taken a day or whatever to go meet somebody and realized when I got there, it was just not going to work. So one of the things I just feel they know I'm in New York. I'm they're going to have to come to New York anyway to work with me to see what I have. And I feel like you need to have you you need a good um, rapport in the beginning. Then you have to like the house. You have to feel that you can do something with it. Um, and sometimes you know I've had wonderful people who I've worked with whose house I really hated. And, but I love them so much. I mean, they came through another client or something and I thought, okay, now what am I going to do? And it's challenging. I mean, sometimes you have to say, um, you know, what can I, how can I work on this? Because I really like the people so much and they must like something about what I do to want to hire me in the first place. And sometimes you have to say, be very honest with people and say, you know, I think you need to get rid of this stone wall in the middle of the, this room because it's too heavy. And I think we should plaster over it. And they're like, what? And, but <laughs> once you do it, they understand it was a better idea. And, sure. uh, and I think, I think personality connections are important. I think that you also have to discuss budgets and, you know, funny. Yes. Oh, I thought, I think I lost you okay. for a second. Are we back? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, I think that you have to have an honest uh, discussion about money. And sometimes people will have a four bedroom house and they want to do it and they want to spend $75,000. And you're like, mm. well, we could do a little bit for this. But so I right. think there, there has to be a reality that you can do for them what they want with the budget they have. And, you know, you have to just be honest because I think people get very frustrated when you jump into it and then they realize they have a half furnished house and that's not what they thought. 
Exactly. Is there a project that you've worked on recently or ever in your career that you would consider to be one of the most memorable or the most memorable? Well, you know, they're all, I've been able to work on some just extraordinary projects, beautiful houses, wonderful clients. I think sometimes the, the thing that that comes to your mind is sometimes the most unusual and maybe difficult project that turns out to be something quite special. Um, I was working, I had a wonderful client and I was working, um, he called me and wanted me to do this enormous office space in a very contemporary building. And it had to be gutted. I mean, there were no walls, there was no plan. And I went to see it and I just couldn't get my head around the space. It was windows that slanted. I mean, it was, it was a very complicated space. And I thought about it. And at first I said, I don't think I'm the right person to do it. And he called me back months later and he said, I've interviewed everybody. You were the one that's got to do it. And so (laughs) I did it and I'm very proud of it because it's absolutely stunning. It's beautiful. Um, It's a garden and it's top of a building. I even did the garden. So I, that's memorable because it, it was something I wasn't comfortable with in the beginning and I had to stretch myself. So, um, you know, that, that's something I've memorable. I think it's the most challenging things that you, you know, you remember for a long time, but on the other hand, I, I've just, you know, I've done, just finished a house in San Francisco that I absolutely adore. And there's, I always call it sort of post postpartum depression. You work with these clients for years, it's finished, you're, everybody's happy, you're crying, you leave and you, it's not yours, you know, it's theirs, you've made it. From, um, and it's always sad sometimes when it's over. It's but it is. It's bittersweet because, like you said, you invest so much time and energy into bringing someone's home together and designing it and executing the project, and you become attached to the vision totally. and the people, of course. And then you know you hope that they enjoy it in good health, and you keep in touch, but it's, no. it's not quite the same because you you <laughs> you've created so, it and made it happen, and uh, and you are totally engaged in it. If you're not totally committed to a project it's never going to be you know you need to wake up in the middle of the night and think what am I going to do with that and you know be completely engaged in it that's right so Bunny switching gears a little bit the homes that you and your husband John Rosselli have shared um, for many years have so many admirers from your home in Connecticut which you chronicled so beautifully in your book An Affair with a House to La Colina, your home in the Dominican Republic, which was a subject of a house by the sea, and now your new apartment in New York City, which you recently moved into and was featured in AD. What is the personality of each house and what does each one represent to you? Oh, wow. Well, um, what's funny is that things just happen. I mean, I bought this house in Connecticut. We call it Manor House because it was the manor house of this little village. almost 40 years ago. Um, I was married to someone else at the time. We had absolute limited funds. We couldn't even furnish it at all. I mean, we used what money we had to um, fix up the kitchen, which we did. Uh, I painted the walls. I hung wallpaper. 
uh, the living room didn't have furniture in it for five years. Um, so I've really, I've, I've had this house and grown into it over a period of time, long period of time. And when John and I um, got together and he started, we were dating and going out and we'd open triage and um, we, I actually didn't think I ever wanted to get married again, but John came in my life, thank God. And when he came mm -hmm. here, he was so positive. And when we were out in what I call the barn that's in the book, which was a garage, he looked at it. He said, you know, I think we can do something with this space. And that's when the garage at the time became the barn, became a great place for us to entertain in. And he's just been so supportive of doing things on the property, you know, doing the conservatory, building his chicken house, the greenhouse. He's he's never flinched at a new project. And the, obviously this property is very casual. It's very country um, there's not, we don't have a lot of grand furniture. Uh, it's very relaxed. We're, you know, everybody's in jeans and except at night when you put on a silk shirt, but, um, we have all these mm -hmm. different spaces. We entertain here a lot. Um, we're in the garden a lot. We have beautiful greenhouses. The house is filled with plants all year round. Um, so it's very relaxed and very country. And then we were going in the, the, winter, we were invited by um, Oscar and Annette de la Renta to come down to the Dominican Republic to visit them. And it was beautiful. John hates cold weather. I mean, absolutely hates it. And he <laughs> had, by that time, we were totally living together. We were a couple. And he was selling his house in New Jersey. And we would go down to the Dominican to stay with Annette and Oscar. And Putacana where we built our house was very, a new development. I mean, there were only like seven houses there at the time. And Oscar said, you know, he said, well, you should buy some land here. And John said, well, you know, let's think about that. And this is what I love about John is this sort of encouragement. And so we bought a wonderful piece of property on a hill overlooking the ocean. And he had sold the house in New Jersey. So we had all this furniture. I mean, if you look at the book, I mean, 80% of that furniture came out of this house in New Jersey, the big trestle table in the living room, the big Italian sofa. I mean, it was amazing. So I got to work with Ernesto Bush to design the house. I had never been able to design a house from scratch for myself or for John and me um, because I, we just always were renovating this property. And, um, I worked with Ernesto Bush. Uh, John's not very good at reading plans. So I would just show him some pictures and say, you know, this is sort of, this is what it's going to look like, I think. And uh, he was very trusting, except one night he came home to the apartment in New York and I had laid out everything that I wanted to do to each room. And John looked at it and he said, I hate everything. <laughs> and I said, what do you oh, no. mean you hate anything? everything. Well, John really doesn't like decoration or he's, he's afraid the room's going to be too decorated. He, if you gave John this choice, he'd have white walls, sisal carpet, and he'd fill it with furniture and art and pictures. So he never wanted the decoration to be more than 
the things. And I said, John, this print is going on one chair. It's not the whole room. Trust me. So finally he said, okay, okay. And uh, so it was installed and he was very proud and loved it. Um, And we had it for 17 years. Um, We, we, we weren't going as much as we did. It's, it's interesting when you have this house that we're both working, you, you can't get there every day. And we would go every other weekend and we'd fill it full of friends and we had wonderful house parties. And, but all of a sudden I'm like, John, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I really am exhausted. I can't, I just can't stand the idea of getting on a plane one more time. And he was agreeing with me. And so I said, what we should do is we should move in New York. We should sell the Dominican and we should get a little bit bigger apartment in New York. You love New York City. You love being here. We'll probably be here more now. And so we um, bought an apartment in the building that I was, we were living in just upstairs on a higher floor and with a little bit more space. So it's been one thing, you know, one thing ends and something else starts, which is fun. And it's fun for us because we have things we love. We don't redo, I mean, we'll do a different background. The New York apartment is different. And I added some more contemporary things to it, some more contemporary light fixtures, art, but it's still, the good furniture we have, we still use it and brought it with us. That's wonderful. So a true progression, it seems like for different chapters in your life, if you will, different seasons. The only thing that's That's consistent is this house. Well, it it is your first love, isn't it? (laughs) Bunny, you're so wonderfully engaged in our design community and are so supportive of so many people and causes within our industry. You are also synonymous with the Kips Bay Showhouse, which you've championed for many years. Why is this organization so special to you? And what does the Kips Bay Showhouse mean to you? Well, you know what's, what's interesting? When I started in the design business, when I was at Parrish Hadley, when the I think I went to the first Kips Bay show house and I saw the most extraordinary rooms. I learned so much from, you know, people who are not with us anymore. Uh, Angela Dongia, uh, Robert Metzger, people that were, you know, all mm-hmm. the great Tom Britt, the great people in the design world, Mark Hampton, uh, Mario's rooms. You went in and you just learned so much. It was it was incredible. The best of the best were clamoring to be in the show house. And so my first love was obviously design, learning from it, seeing from it, uh, just being exposed to it. And then I, as the more I got involved, I realized what the real mission was. And I went out to the boys and girls clubs in the Bronx. And all you have to do is show up there one day and you're just you just are taken in by these, all these kids who get to come at the end of the day after school for these after school programs. They're given a late lunch. They're given supper. They, they can do sports. They can do art. They can do computer studies. People help them with their homework. It gives them a place to be safe and hang out and be involved in different projects till they have to go home. And a lot of these kids have, you know, working parents or one parent, or they can have very dysfunctional home lives. And it's really 
it's so in, incredible. And the fact that um, the show house helps the design community and it's made careers. I mean, think of the number of people whose career doing a room at Kipps Bay has really put them on the map. And I think that's so important. It's a way to really show what you can do. And the industry backs it up. I mean, fabric houses lend fabrics, dealers lend furniture. People are always so supportive of the designers doing a room. And again, that's good for our industry. And the benefit to the kids is just extraordinary. And Jim... Jim Druckman Absolutely. is, who is uh, uh, chairman of the board and certainly um, he heads up the show house. He is the most wonderful man in the whole world. And I can't say no to him at all. <laughs> well, speaking of Jim, we would have been at the president's dinner this week. And unfortunately, the show house and a lot of the fundraising events that surround each show house each year or the Kip Space show house each year have been postponed due to the coronavirus, how can people continue to help the Kipps Bay Boys and Girls Club in this time? Because they do such incredible work that truly changes lives if, for these if children. If you go on their site, um, one of the things I would suggest is they have what we started it at the dinners. It's called Adopt a Child. And what you do is you pay for one child to be at Kipps Bay for the whole year. And it's not that expensive. You can go online and make a contribution to adopt a child, which is, you know, the more people that can do that, uh, you know, the, the more help they can have. You know, it's, it's interesting. I um, also started something up here called Trade Secrets, which was a antique garden and rare plant sale. And of course it got canceled and it's, it's uh, profits. The benefits all go to women's support service, which is a um, domestic violence organization. Well, this is the worst time for that. I mean, imagine the yes. horrible situation people are going to be in. And um, a lovely friend called me last week and emailed me that she and her family were um, planning their uh, foundation contributions and that they wanted to make a large donation to Wes because they realized how, how many families are going to struggle and they thought that that was a good place to donate to. So I think all of us, you know, Kipps Bay, wherever we live, if we can reach out to some small organization or do do in some small way i think it's going to make us all feel better absolutely it's so important to give back circling back to parish hadley you've spoken about how special it is to be part of the legacy of such a legendary firm and even wrote a book about it what would you like your legacy to be oh i don't know <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think somebody else has got to write that. Um, you know, it, it, I don't, it's very hard to talk about yourself. I think I think that mm -hmm. you you want to stand. You know, I want I hope the, the work I do will be appreciated and um, I hope people will learn from it. I feel so fortunate to have had so many young people come work for me, go out, start things, start a career, been successful so I feel like I've given uh, the legacy will go on, whatever it is. And, um, you know, I just hope that, um, you know, I grew up in a 
in Virginia with a family that um, my mother particularly was very caring person. And she always said, you know, you've got to always think about others. There's always somebody that you can do something for. And I hope that people will under realize that I'm not a, my soul is not a fancy, arrogant person. Um, though I love to do elegant, beautiful rooms, um, I also don't think that that is really who I am. Um, and so I hope that I hope that people don't look at a room and say, "Ooh, what a dreadful person! Why would somebody have that?" So, you know, it's just I don't know. <laughs> I can't imagine anybody would. You are truly one of the kindest people I know. I've felt your kindness firsthand and your support. And I know that there are many, many others who have as well. So I'm fairly certain that people will always think of you as someone of not only extraordinary design talent, but of profound when I went kindness. To, when I go to school and um, the report cards would come back, my mother said, I never looked at your grades. I just wanted to hear the comments if you were well behaved. <laughs> oh. oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> well, Bunny, in addition to your design work, you also have multiple licensed collections across various categories. And of course, Bunny Williams Home. You've written seven books, which is an extraordinary feat. What are you currently working on that you are most excited about? Well, I love, you know, Bunny Williams Home is been a uh, really exciting thing to do uh, to create pieces of furniture. I, it's funny, I thought I wanted to, when I started it uh, some time ago, I always say I started with the drinks tables because I was so tired of looking for little small tables to go next to a chair that I thought I should design something. So I started doing small things and it's, you know, obviously grown. So it's always exciting to have you know, to be stimulated, to be thinking about the next chair or the next sofa or the next um, mirror that you want to design. And all the licensing partners, I mean, I was working with Kyle, who's my creative director. We were working on some new rugs with Dash and Albert that are kind of divine, newer patterns. Uh, I do, I love doing things with Ballard. Um, and I'm so impressed with the quality that they make. Um, we have some new things in this last collection that are really marvelous. And the fact that they can do these things and have them be affordable to more people, I think is just extraordinary. Um, you know, mirror image, I do mirrors with them. So each licensing partner is, it's exciting and, and, but it's a lot to think about. And, um, you know, licensing, I think that, um, designers have to understand that there have been very few people who um, have gone into licensing where it's been, you know, terribly successful. I think if that's the way you want, if you want to do, be, do just licensing, you need to get somebody to really advise you how to do it because I've done it in a, in the only way I know how, but I think the people who've been more successful at it um, are, um, you know, they have people who really train them in doing licensing. I think I, I'm afraid for the industry, there's so many more people doing licensing that it's mm -hmm. even harder. I mean, it's not, 
you know, 20 years ago, it was very rare. And now everybody, right. you, you can't name a designer that doesn't have a licensing collection somewhere, which is great. Um, but on the other hand, I think it dilutes the, um, you know, the success of each collection because there's so many new ones. Sure. It's yes. gotten so saturated. And like you said, it's a lot of work. And when you're doing a typical licensing deal, the percentage of, you know, the commission that you get as the designer for the designs is pretty small in contrast to um, the other cut, which obviously goes to the manufacturer who takes on the implied risk sure. and the financial responsibility of executing, developing right. the designs, manufacturing them, marketing them. So there's a lot that people, I don't think, understand. And they just see it at face value and think that it's an easy way to make money or to, to build a brand. And that isn't And also, I think, frankly, I think if you're going to do well at anything, you need it to have built your brand. Um, a licensing, somebody is not going to take you on to do licensing unless you have um, some sort of track record. Absolutely. So, Bunny, what is currently giving you hope regarding the future of design? Well, I think that um, I think there's a lot of great young talent. I I I see, um, you know, just through Instagram and magazines. I think, wow, uh, that's there's a lot of young people coming along who are doing their own thing. But what I really love to see is that they're coming back and referring to the past. They're, they're looking back. The only thing I will say about that is I think people have to be very careful that they don't copy a room because mm -hmm. it's too obvious. I mean, if you've seen an image of a, fa a famous room someplace and then you look at a magazine and there's that room that somebody did for a client. That's not the way to design. The way to design is to take a part of something, learn from something and think, Ooh, I like that detail or I like that color combination, but make it your own. Always try to be creative and be individual. That's the way I think you'll have a long, a longer career. And you, we also have to be, uh, you know, we have to work in, I've, I've always said, I never want to do the same room twice. I don't want to do the same scheme twice. Even though, though I love that fabric, I don't want to use it over and over again. I've got to go out there in the world and find something I love just as much. Um, because I think that's what being creative is all about. But I do see, and I'm very impressed that there is a lot of young people coming along that seem to have depth to the work. So interesting. Wise words. I couldn't agree more. So, Bunny, as we wrap up, we're recording this conversation in the midst of staying at home during this terrible coronavirus pandemic. What has this odd experience, it seems really surreal, what has this odd experience taught you? Have you found a silver lining? Um, you know, it's hard. I think that um, I almost I can't watch the news anymore. Um, the silver lining will be when they seem to be able to see the flattening of the curve as they um, call it. For me, um, I'm very lucky to be here. I'm re learning more about my garden. I hope to go buy some pansies this afternoon. 
Um, I'm looking at reading Russell Page's Education of a Gardener again. Uh, I am really able to come up with my library, um, go through, you know, years and years of magazines, make new uh, inspiration boards to have a little bit more time to think about the projects that I have coming up and what I want to do with them because we have time. Usually I don't have time. I'm busy and you, you're always trying to make it perfect. But now I think the silver lining for me is that I'm going to have a few weeks or however long to really envision these new projects that I have coming up and ones that I'm finishing and working on to maybe be even more creative. I agree. I feel like we've all sort of hit the pause button, the reset button and time, which is typically our most precious resource is suddenly something that we have so much more of. And what we do with that time will make such a big difference as we come out of this. I have found personally, I've, I've had more time to sit with my creativity and I've had more ideas and have thought to even start this podcast and have spent more creative time on my projects. Um, so in a way it feels absolutely, like I mean, it, I've never had this much time that is not filled with appointments. I've never, do you know that in 40 years, I've never been in this house on this property for this long a period of time in, in, in ever. Incredible. So I think that we have to say, okay, um, how, what am I going to do? How am I going to use it to my advantage? Um, and I think that is the silver lining for all of us. That's exactly right. Well, Bunny, thank you so much for your time. This has been so enlightening and enjoyable. I've loved hearing more about your journey, your legacy, the the business that you've built, and you've been so kind to share so much with us. So well, thank, thank, you, you, thank you so, so much. much and it's so much fun to talk to you. And whoever's listening, stay safe, read, listen to beautiful music, and realize that we have a little time to ourselves that we usually don't have. That's right. Well, be right. well, Bunny. Bye. I hope to see you soon. Bye. That was designer, entrepreneur, author, and philanthropist, Bunny Williams. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll visit us online at thestylefilespodcast.com for more episodes. You can also subscribe at Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you truly enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating or a review. It truly helps us to get some traction as we get this podcast off the ground and it will only take a second of your time. We look forward to seeing you the next time.